Lifestyle changes might just be reducing your risk of developing dementia. Joining us to talk about it is Saskia Sivananthan, who is the affiliate professor, Department of Family Medicine at McGill University. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm always confused as to, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's. What's the difference between the two? Such a great question to start off with. So think of dementia like an umbrella term. Um, It's kind of like we say cancer. There are many different types of cancers. There are also many different types of dementias. So Alzheimer's disease is the most common one, um, but there are other kinds. For example, there's vascular dementia, frontal temporal dementia, Lewy body dementia. And what, what, um, what makes all of these uh, come under that term dementia is memory loss, but there are other risk factors and there are other symptoms to look for as well. So, uh, Professor, before we get into how to reduce the risks, what do we know about how someone acquires dementia? Is it uh, hereditary or are there certain things that we have done in our lives to bring on dementia? Well, we know for sure that the the highest risk for developing dementia is still age. So the older you are, the higher your risk of developing dementia. Um, but there is a genetic component to it as well. Um, and we can touch a little bit on that uh, because that's something that Chris Hemsworth discovered uh, it, while he was filming his documentary. But there are risk factors that are related to your lifestyle. And so that's what our article was about which really have to do with things like diet, um, exercising, that we know now increases your risk if your lifestyle is unhealthy. Um, It doesn't mean that it guarantees that you will develop dementia or you won't develop dementia, um, but it does certainly change your risk of developing it. The article you're referring to is one that you co-wrote in The Conversation. People can find it at theconversation.com. And, uh, you know, in the, the, the heading sort of of the article, it talks about brain plasticity. Can you break that down for us so we can understand now what, what you're talking about? Yeah, for sure. So one of the questions that I get asked a lot is, okay, so there are all these things you tell us that you have to change your diet, you know, maintain hearing, uh, get a good night's sleep, but why? Like, how does this actually link to dementia? Why Why does it change your risk of dementia? And actually, it was my dad who asked me these questions all the time. <laughs> so I thought, all right, let me write this to really be able to explain that better. <clears throat> and a term that is really helpful, I think, for people to understand is cognitive reserve. We talk about that and neuroplasticity. So cognitive reserve is basically you build up enough neural pathways and neurons are the brain cells. Um, They're the ways in which we connect our memories and are able to access our thinking. And if you build up enough of those pathways, even if there's damage due to something like dementia, your brain is able to compensate for that. And the other term is called neuroplasticity. And with neuroplasticity, it's your brain's ability to continue to grow. It's a muscle, just like any other muscle, like your heart muscle and your um, the rest of the body. The brain is also a muscle that needs to continue to grow. And, and neuroplasticity is the term that explains how that growing happens. So with these risk factors, what we've learned is, is when you change your lifestyle, um, for example, when you're more socially engaged, when you're exercising, uh, those things stimulate your brain and it helps your brain grow new connections, new neural connections. And so it increases your cognitive reserve. 
And I just want to touch a little bit on, on give you an example of what that might mean. You know me as Saskia Sivananthan, as the author of this paper. That's one neural pathway to remember me. But another way to remember me is that I'm also a, an affiliate professor at McGill. Or another way is that I like really big fancy earrings, if you knew that about me, would be another pathway to me. So the thing about neuroplasticity is as you build more of those pathways, you can access the same memory about who I am, but through multiple pathways. So, so technically, and I want to you know make sure I'm clear on this, Professor, are we saying that this plasticity is almost the equivalent of going to the gym, increasing our cardio so it's easier for us to, to do stairs, for example, because we've had that exercise? Yeah, so you're basically doing cardio for your heart, but also cardio for your brain. <clears throat> so when you're um, learning and engaged in more activities that are stimulating your brain, and this is why we say things like pick up a new language or a new instrument, because that's completely new for your brain, you're exercising your brain. Um, and we also know, though, that just generally exercising your body is also good because it increases the oxygen and blood flow to your brain. And that's part of the ways we think that it stimulates and keeps your neurons healthy and your brain active. I think we can all get on board with that. That makes sense. I can I can understand how these things relate together by how you just defined it all. Um, and I'm curious, you know, social isolation or or sort of you know loneliness, that sort of thing. What impact might might that have on dementia? You know, could could you combat that by doing new things, even though you're alone, or does being alone increase the risk of dementia as well? Mm-hmm. So this is a really, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a new risk factor that sort of just come to the forefront. And I think we're going to see a lot more of it because unfortunately the pandemic was almost a, a, a way in which we saw how society as a whole is impacted by social isolation. And what we're realizing is that when you're socially isolated and, and um, yes, doing those activities and new activities will still be good for you, but social isolation itself is a risk factor. Um, and what the, the thinking behind it is, is that it's linked to inflammation. So basically, our brains are really just wired to be socially engaged, to talk to each other the way we are right now, to share information, to bond and, and you know, to have emotional support. And when we don't have that, when we're isolated, um, what we think is is that the body starts having a stress response. Um, so you're, you, you have inflammation processes and that can damage the brain. That's the thinking about potentially why social isolation is a risk factor linked to dementia. When it comes to the physicality and the lifestyle changes, Professor, I know some folks might be resistant to making these changes. It's fine to say this is the way, but they might not want to take that path. How can healthcare professionals communicate effectively the importance of these changes? Like I'm thinking, do you think we might at some point see a doctor prescribing physical activity? You know, this was a conversation I was just having the other day with a friend of mine who is a GP, and we were talking about something called social prescribing. And the idea behind it is exactly what you just mentioned, which is you go in to see your doctor, you might be at risk of dementia, but also, you know, things like diabetes and, and, and stroke are all linked. It's the same sort of risk factors. And you could see a world potentially where your doctor says, all right, here, I'm writing you a prescription and I want you to be able to go to the gym or I want you to get outside this many times a day. Um, and that's called social prescribing. Now, the, it's a push and pull, right? So your, your doctor might prescribe something like that. But wouldn't it be great if we also had policies that support that? So, you know, once you get that prescription, 
you're able to get a lower membership to the gym maybe or mm. access to parks that might be free or cheaper. Uh, that would be a, a great way to be able to really encourage society as a whole to be more engaged in li- and changing our lifestyle. Love that. Brilliant. Thank you so much for the conversation. Really appreciate your time. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll direct people to theconversation.com where you can find that article co-written by Saskia Sevathanen, who is the affiliate professor in the Department of Family Medicine at McGill University.